But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all of this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. This is the word of the Lord. This Wednesday will be the 50th anniversary of the death of Martin Luther King, Jr. He was born back in 1929. He graduated college when he was just 18 years old. He went to seminary and and there he studied to be a, a Southern Baptist preacher. It was in 1956 that he became thrust into the national limelight for our civil rights movement and the struggles here in our United States. When you go back and you look at his life and his message, it's easy to see that he was a a disciple of Jesus Christ. You go back and look at his message, and it was a message that all people, all people should be treated with respect and kindness and love. It doesn't matter whether you're white or black or red or brown, male or female or young or old. Everybody is a child of God, he said. It's very much what Jesus would be telling us. Everybody should be treated with kindness and equality. He very much believed in returning love for hate, nonviolence. He begged his followers, do not return hate for hate and evil for evil. We will respond to hate with love. You know, it was a message that a lot of people didn't want to hear. On all sides, they didn't want to hear about it. It was in 1956, he was invited to come to Montgomery, Alabama to be a part of the bus boycott that was going on, started by Rosa Parks. And while he was there living in Montgomery, Alabama in 56, his house was bombed. It was a miracle that he, his wife, his daughter were not harmed. But it would just be the beginning of all the threats on his life. In 1958, he would actually be at a book signing. And there was this woman, Isola Curry. She was African-American. And it would later be shown she very much was, had many mental challenges and issues, schizophrenia and problems. But she came to the book signing, and out of the blue, she stabbed him with a letter opener. It went in, and it rested against his aorta. The doctor said, do not speak or sneeze. 
For if it pricks the aorta, you will bleed to death before we can get in. That close. That was 1958. And all the threats would only pick up from that time on. And yet he would never back down. Never back down from his message and what he was doing and trying to reach out and ask us to love one another. It would be in 1958, 1968 that he would go to Memphis to be supportive of the sanitation workers' strike that was going on. His plane was delayed because of a bomb threat. And when he finally got there, that night he gave his famous speech, I've been to the mountaintop. It really was a, a speech where you can almost sense that he believed the end was coming. That things were getting close. He could just feel it. And he started talking that night and recounting the history over these last 10 years. And he even said, you know, I sure am glad I didn't sneeze back then. I would have missed so much in these last 10 years. He recounted what all had happened. And then he moved into this analogy of where you remember Moses had led the people of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years and they finally get to the edge of the promised land. And it is Moses who goes up on the mountain to look over the river Jordan and he sees the promised land. But he dies. He doesn't make it to the promised land. And that night when Martin gave his speech, he started making references to that idea. And I want to read you what he had to say. I got to Memphis and some began to say the threats and that what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I'd like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And He's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. It would be his last speech. For the next day on his balcony at the Lorraine Motel, there he would be assassinated. We believe that some of his last words, if not his last words, were spoken to Ben Branch. Ben was a musician who was going to be playing at the event that night where Martin was going to be. And we know he said, Ben, make sure you play Precious Lord, Take My Hand in the meeting tonight and play it real pretty. Martin Luther King died when he was just 39 years old. But he lived such an amazing life and such a life of significance. And he lived his life in the awareness of death and he was not afraid. 
He wasn't afraid because he knew that promise of God's grace and the gift of new life in the kingdom of heaven. And when you're not afraid to die, then you're not afraid to live. This morning, I want to bring this sermon series to a conclusion. A sermon series we've looked at for the season of Lent entitled, In Matters of Life and Death and Life. And what we've been saying is, we need to look at our lives in the light of God's grace. And not be afraid to look at our failures and mistakes, not to beat ourselves up. Not to try to make ourselves feel guilty or bad but to get honest in who we are in the light of God's grace and in the awareness of death to realize that death is a part of all of our lives and we are going to die, so get on with living. And if you're able to look and know that you don't have to be afraid of dying, then you can look at your death and you get on with living an abundant life right now. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. It all begins with the Easter message. This morning, our scripture lesson is about that first Easter when it shows the women are coming to the tomb. So much has happened in the last week. It was one week ago on a Sunday we were here celebrating Palm Sunday as the people, the disciples and Jesus came into Jerusalem and people were waving their palm branches and shouting Hosanna. They thought Jesus would be a Messiah like David, raise an army, overthrow the Roman government and establish the kingdom of Israel. That was the hope. That was the belief. And yet so quickly they lost it all. By Thursday, Judas had betrayed Jesus. He was tried by the religious authorities. He was then tried by the government with Pilate. He was sentenced to die. He was crucified. And by Friday, he was dead. They laid him in tomb. It all changed so fast. And now on that Sunday morning, the women came to the tomb. They wanted to anoint the body for burial. But when they got there, they found the stone was rolled away. The tomb was empty. And there were two men in dazzling apparel, it says. There were two angels in. And they said to the women, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Remember how we told you. I like that line and it's a place to stop. Remember How he told you? That's why you and I come on Easter year after year is to remember what he told us. For when you and I remember what he has told us through the Easter story, then we find a hope and a strength to live life abundant. It's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to remember what he told us. And I think there's three things we need to see. First of all, when you remember the Easter story, you hear a message of forgiveness. The disciples had failed in such a terrible way. They had promised, we'll never let them get to you. And they did. They ran away. They denied him. Why do you think only women came to the tomb on Sunday morning? 
because the disciples were home feeling guilty at how much they had failed. But go beyond the Easter story to all the post-resurrection stories, the stories of Jesus appearing to the two men on the road to Emmaus, Jesus appearing in the upper room, Jesus appearing on the beach to the disciples, all these post-resurrection stories, you never find Jesus condemning, berating His disciples for their failures. You don't find Him asking for vengeance. Go get the religious authorities. Go get justice back from Pilate. You don't find that message. The message you find is the message from the cross where Jesus said, Father, forgive them. It was the message about forgiveness that God wants to be reconciled to us and He wants us to forgive each other. You know, this week is going to be the Masters Golf Tournament. You know how much I love sports of all kinds. But the Masters is one of those that I really enjoy each year and have a good time with. As I got to thinking about the golf tournament, I started thinking of some of my favorite golfing stories. And I, I couldn't help but think about Amy Olcott. She's a great, successful player on the women's tournament, the LPGA. Amy is now 62 years old. Uh, she now is into golf course design and in being a commentator, things like that. But she has a fascinating life story. She grew up in California. Her father was an orthodontist. The family did very well. But from an early age, they could tell that Amy was, was kind of a tomboy. She loved sports. They had a swimming pool. Her father put in a tennis court. He thought, they're going to like tennis. In the end, she didn't like tennis. She was eight years old when she wound up seeing a, a, a golf tournament there on TV, on CBS. And she came to her dad and said, I want to play golf. He went out and he bought her a putter, cut it down to size. And she got out in the front yard, he kind of cut down the grass, and she started putting for the, uh, the sprinkler heads, using that kind of as her cup. And she would putt and putt and putt. She had such a good time, kept on doing it. Her father saw she was serious about this, and so Gene went out and he got a soup can and he put that into the, the ground out in the front yard, and she started putting for the soup can. She continued to putt and putt and have such a good time that her father saw her enthusiasm so he went to the golf store and came home with a hole cutter and cut holes all over the front yard put in real golf cups and now she could putt all over the front yard he saw how much she continued to love it and in the end he decided he cut out a big hole brought in sand and created a sand trap you got to know how to get out of a sand trap and so she started practicing that. And of course, if you're learning, you kind of catch a little fat. And she started driving the balls through the front window. So he went out and got some green netting to put all around the front yard. So it would cover the, the, the putting area as well as all the sand trap. And I can only imagine what were the neighbors thinking by this point. And, and all I can figure is they must not have had a homeowners association. Her dad went out and made up some cards for Amy and it said, Alcott Golf and Country Club. And she got out and played and played. He would hold the flashlight at night so she could play. They got it to where she started taking some 
professional golf lessons, and she just excelled. That by the time she became a young teenager, her father had a problem. He had gotten into gambling, and he got addicted. He just couldn't help himself. His wife tried to support him, encourage him, get help. But he was so addicted, he started losing everything they had. So she divorced him, and he left. And he was out of Amy's life for years. She continued to get better and better with her lessons and and entering tournaments. She turned pro in 1975, and right off the bat, she started to win. And over the next four or five years, when she'd be playing at different places around the country, now and then she thought, somewhere at the back of the gallery, she was seeing her father. It almost looked like him. Sometimes it was up on the last row in the stands. Other times it was at a distance. He never approached her, never tried to infringe on her, but she could have sworn it was him. And as the years went by, she finally realized it is him. Every now and then, he's showing up at her tournaments. It was in 1980. They were playing the U.S. Open in Nashville. And Amy went out and she trounced him. At the end of Saturday going into Sunday, she had an eight-stroke lead. And she went out and that day she started looking around. There was her dad. She could tell, that's him. There in the crowd. That was him. And he was following along. And whenever she would do something well, he was jumping up now and waving. He was excited to be cheering for her. Never approached her. Never wanted to intrude. Always at a distance. When she came to the 18th fairway, she now had a nine-stroke lead. She knew she was going to win. And she looked over and there at a distance, she saw her father sitting under a tree. It was over 100 degrees. Everybody was dying. But he had walked every step of every hole. And she saw him sitting under this tree, wiping his brow. And she started thinking. He's the one who put a soup can in the yard. He's the one who cut all the holes in the yard. He's the one who put in a sand trap. He's the one who put up the green netting. She chipped onto the green. Two-foot putt. She won. She signed her scorecard and she went and turned it in. And they got the golf cart now to pick her up and take her to the press tent for all the glory. And as she's riding along, of course, all the fans are cheering and screaming and congratulating her. And she says to the driver... You see that man over into the tree? I want you to go over and pick him up. That's my father. And he deserves the glory more than anyone else. And she went over to the tree and she invited her dad to get in the golf cart with her. And they rode to the press tent. And they did their interviews and all the excitement. And the next morning they had breakfast. They hadn't had breakfast together in years. And she said, he is the same old dad. And I was still his little girl. 
That's such a good time. And over these next year, they were together so much and he would come to her tournaments. They had no way of knowing that in less than a year, her father at 60 years old would die. But Amy would look back and be so grateful that there were these moments of forgiveness and reconciliation. Changed everything. The message of Easter is that God seeks to be in relationship with us and forgive us. We don't have to be afraid. But He also is asking us to forgive each other. Because without forgiveness, there is no family. Without forgiveness, there is no church. Without forgiveness, we will never be a healed country. To forgive, to be forgiven, and to forgive. It is the message of Easter. And secondly, when you and I remember the Easter story, we hear the message of hope. For the disciples, when they had come into Jerusalem, man, their whole life was expecting Jesus is the Messiah, like a David. We're going to overthrow the Romans. And everything they hoped for and dreamed was gone in a few days. But what they would discover is, even though life did not work out the way they planned, you look at the post-Easter stories, the post-resurrection stories, and Jesus is always casting a vision for the future. What next? You and I know what it means to have life not work out the way we plan. It is the message of Easter that gives us hope that even though it is different, it can be good. I don't know if you were watching the news yesterday, but yesterday the funeral was on for Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking, you certainly should recognize the name, one of the great scientific thinkers of our generation, but also really of all time. They put him up with the great scientific minds of all time. Yesterday, they had thousands of people lined the streets in Cambridge as his body was taken to St. Mary's Cathedral, and there they had his funeral. Now, Stephen Hawking is a fascinating man. I mean, you know, he, he wrote the book, A Brief History of Time, in which he began talking about the creation of, of the universe and the cosmos. You know, and sometimes he would say, I really believe God is the one unifying theory. And other times he'd say, you know, I'm not so sure about this God idea. I think that's okay. It's okay to question and to think. And science is never the enemy of religion. And Stephen was one of those who wanted to plummet the depths of the universe and to think. And he had an amazing mind. Fascinating thing is, he was actually born on the 300th anniversary of the death of Galileo. And he died on the birthday of Albert Einstein. He's actually going to have his ashes interred in Westminster Abbey beside, John New beside Newton and between Darwin. Now, he was quite the thinker. As he thought about his life, 
the struggles he had. You, you always remember his picture sitting in a wheelchair. This so disfigured man, so leaning over in the wheelchair, so struggling. He's had a mechanical voice for more than a decade. The reason is because when he was 21 years old, he was diagnosed with ALS. You remember ALS is, is when, it's Lou Gehrig's disease. It's when the muscles begin to atrophy. They start at your feet and move all the way up. It hits your heart and lungs and you die. They told him, said, you probably have about two years to live. He would live more than 50. He died at 76 years old. Doctors still don't understand exactly how that happened, but all the muscles began to atrophy. He could not do anything. And you always saw him slumped over in this wheelchair. But even though the body couldn't work, the mind was still working just fine. And that's what was so fascinating is he continued to think about the universe. And I love one of his quotes. He said, It wouldn't be much of a universe if it wasn't home to the people you love. And he also said, I want to show that people need not be limited by physical handicaps as long as they are not disabled in spirit. As long as they are not disabled in spirit. You and I do not have to be disabled in spirit because of the good news of the resurrection. That even when life does not work out the way we planned, it is God who gives us a future. You know, these disciples, they could have spent their life looking in the past and saying, why? Why did Judas betray Jesus? Why did the high priest want to get him? Why did Pilate go along with them? Why did we chicken out and run away? They could have spent their life looking back and asking why, full of grief and guilt. But that's not what happens. On the other side of the resurrection, they are given a vision for the future. What now? What's next? And you and I may be living a life where things did not work the way we planned. Physically, the struggles we may have, or maybe it's in our relationships and the struggles we have gone through with divorce and being single. Maybe it is the issues of money. We all have struggles. Life doesn't work out the way you plan. But it's the gift of Easter that says there is a future. There is a new vision. There is hope. And so third, I believe when you and I remember the story of Easter, we also hear a message of the resurrection. It is that promise where, as St. Paul said, I know there is nothing in life or in death. Nothing in life or in death that can separate us from the love of God as revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is the promise that we are more than a body. You and I know that we are a soul. We believe in reality of what you see and taste and touch, but reality is more than just what you can see and hold and measure. We believe there's another dimension to reality, 
and it is the reality of the spiritual. And we don't try to answer exactly what heaven is going to be like. We don't know. It's about trusting in God's grace that it's going to be good. That we will be in God's presence and be loved. And more than that, you really don't know. Easter has us to where we trust. And we know it's going to be okay. We don't have to be afraid of death. And if you're not afraid of death, then you're not afraid to live. Now, in an abundant way. It is the promise of Easter that enables us to face our own death and the death of those we love and not be afraid. You know, it's about 10 years ago, I had the privilege of meeting a wonderful couple from Midwest City. It was Jack and Gail Fry. Jack and Gail, um, they're members of our own church. They're people of great faith. But they also watch on TV and they called one day and said, we'd like to come by and meet you. We have a story we'd like to share. It turned out that back in 1991, they had two children, Shane and, and Jamie. Jamie was 15 years old and she was killed in a car wreck. 15 years old. And you know, I, I still, I've done lots of funerals for young people who die, but I still have a hard time imagining what is it like to lose a child? The grief must be overwhelming. And it certainly was for Gail. She went into this deep depression. Jack and Shane grieved as well. But for Gail, it was all consuming. She couldn't get out of bed. She really couldn't do anything. And it went on for over a year. For over a year, it all fell on Jack to do the grocery shopping and the cooking and all these things to try to hold the family together, take care of things. But finally, through faith and through prayers and through family and friends, Gail was able to pull out of it and be healed back to where she lives and can love and can laugh and think about her daughter. But it was a struggle. And when she finally got better, she wanted to do something for her husband. I mean, Jack had been so good. He had been so kind. And she wanted to do something now to say thank you to him. And she thought about how much he loved golf. It was his favorite sport. And his favorite hero was Jack Nicholas. And so she didn't think anything about it. She decided to sit down and just write Jack Nicholas a letter and to say, you know, I, I want to tell you about my family and Jamie and our struggles and what my husband Jack did. And he would love to meet you. We would fly anywhere in the United States if you would take just a moment to say hi and shake his hand. And she mailed a letter. Well, it turned out that Marilyn K.O. was Jack's secretary, been that way for more than 25 years. She got the letter and she knew the answer. Jack gets lots of letters like that. And the answer is always no. I mean, if you say yes to one, how do you say no to another? He was actually in England playing in the British Open. But when he came home and Marilyn gave him the letter, he read it, he thought for a moment and then surprised her and said, tell them to come to Denver, Cherry Hills Country Club. Gave them a date. It's the date we're going to open the new course and we're going to play it. I'll greet them then. 
It was his birthday present, and she surprised him with airline tickets. Here's airline tickets. We're going to Denver, and you're going to meet Jack Nicholas. And he was so thrilled, stunned. They flew out to Denver. They were taken back into a tent, and sure enough, when the time came, here came Jack, and he didn't come over and just shake hands and say, how you doing? No, he came over and sat down, started to visit, to get to know them, to share For the next 20 minutes, he showed them around the country club and talked with them. It was a special time. Finally, they came and said, it's time for us to get out here and tee off and we need to go play. Jack and his son were going to to play the course. The press was going to be there and follow along. It was Scott Tolley, who was Jack's handler, who was always there to take care of things and said, you've got press credentials. You can come along and follow along as well. After about nine holes, Gail was tired and said, I'm going back to the country club. And Scott said to Jack, why don't you come on this side of the ropes and we can walk with Jack and his son the last nine. What a thrill. What a memory. They came to the end. Jack had to fly out the next day. But he said to Jack and Gail, you're my guest. You can play tomorrow for free here on the course. Anything you want, you're my guest. What a special time. But little did Jack know how much this relationship, this new friendship was going to mean to him. For it would only be about six months later for Jack Nicholas that his 17-month-old grandson, Jake, would be with a babysitter, would manage to open a sliding glass door get out onto the back porch and through a fence and fall into a hot tub and drown. This little grandson had loved his grandpa so much. Whenever Jack showed up, he would come and throw his arms around Jack's neck and hug him and hug him and would not let go. And when mother would come and say it's time to go, they had to peel him off Jack He loved his grandpa so. And now Jack Nicholas and his family understood the grief of losing a child. And immediately Gail and Jack reached back out to the Nicholas family because they understood. They understood. And it was then that Gail decided to write a book and Tyler thinking out loud and it was about losing a child and how do you cope and how do you heal and again Jack Nicholas did something he never does he wrote the foreword for the book he was grateful for the support and the kindness and the book well it really was all about how you can heal but it starts by trusting in the promise of Easter and knowing the good news of the resurrection that it is the gift of God's grace that gives us new life and His kingdom. You don't have to be afraid of dying. It's the promise of Easter. When it comes to matters of life and death and life, It is the good news of Easter 
that makes it to where we're not afraid to think about dying. So we get on with living an abundant life now. It is the good news that the tomb is empty. He is risen. He is risen indeed. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us slip up our own silent prayer. Amen.